Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and each week we come to you here on MPB and talk, have an in-depth create in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. And today we're doing a preview of our annual Governor's Arts Awards that are taking place February 8th in Jackson at the Old Capitol Museum. Uh, all throughout this month, we're talking to our recipients for 2018. And on the phone today with us is Steve Azar. He's one of our recipients. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, hey there, Larry. How you doing? Well, First of all, congratulations on this. Uh, we're real excited to have you at the, at the ceremony uh, in February. Thank you, thank you. Always, always an honor, and uh, and it means the world. So uh, it means that maybe I've been uh, on the right track throughout my career. So it, it does. It means a great deal. Well, you've got, um, of course, people know you best as as a as a singer and a performer and a songwriter. But you've got so many different uh, avenues that you've been pursuing in recent years, and we're going to get to those. You know, as a philanthropist and as a as a festival uh, founder and promoter and. Uh, so many other things that you're doing, uh, but before we, we get all into the, what you're doing now, let's talk a little bit, just give uh, folks a little bit about your background. Of course, you're a native of the Delta, and just talk a little bit about kind of uh, growing up in the, in the Delta, what area you're from, and, and, and let people know about that. Well, I'm a, a generations back Mississippi Delta boy, uh, Greenville, Mississippi. Uh, my mom's from, My mom actually grew up on, uh, on Highway 61 in Clarksdale on the top of a grocery store. Uh, my and my cousins have the famous Abe's Barbecue. Her her mom, my mom's first cousin, and on the sixty one forty nine split, uh, a lot of stories between growing up in Greenville and then uh, obviously spending weekends at my grandparents there in Clarksdale. Uh, between uh, between passing through Cleveland and ended up going to Delta State uh, and graduating there, uh, that highway ended up being uh, you know a big part of my my upbringing and also uh, you know just a really big part of my sort of my backdrop, uh, you know, for uh, all my writings and sort of my development as an artist. Uh, just It was just sort of through osmosis and just growing up here and down that highway, I just uh, how it just sort of seeped in, and and it just continues to do it t- till this day. Yeah. Does, is there any uh, kind of musical, uh, ans- do you have any musical ancestor, any people in your family who are musicians? Man, man it's zero. My sister's really? married. Surgeons. My brother's uh, chief of staff at at uh, Campbell's Clinic in Memphis, and <laughs> I mean it's it's uh, we're not even. I mean it's it's so funny. I mean we we look back and there's nothing, and which which sort of makes me sort of wonder, just because I fell in love with it so much, uh, um, it, you know, does that give you the right of passage? Uh, you know, as a young kid, and uh, you know my development was slow. Um, as far as entertaining uh, and, and, and sneaking in blues clubs and all that that I got to do uh, as a little boy uh, and, and be accepted, uh, for some reason I, I, I feared not on stage. I always loved the feeling of being there. I actually feel more comfortable in front of a crowd than in one. And, uh, and, I, and for some reason I just, uh, as bad as I probably was, uh, I, I was sort of accepted with, uh, uh, with a diverse crowd. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, it just sort of gave me confidence. And I, I look back and I think about that. And I'm going like, what were they doing? You know, and what were they looking at and, and applauding, you know, to give me the confidence to continue. But I guess, you know, uh, you know, I'm glad I'm glad I don't have a, a you know, you know, I wasn't living in a, you know, in a reality back then. <laughs> right. Because reality may have told me that uh, if I guess if you could have recorded me you, I, and I would have listened back, I would have ran. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, even though you don't have that kind of uh, pedigree in your family, I mean, Greenville is really such a such an amazingly rich musical town. Of course, people yeah. know it best for the, you know, the the long running Delta Blues Festival. But you know, knowing different Greenville musicians over the years working here in the state, it, it it's a bigger story than just blues. And I was hoping you could talk about kind of the diversity of the music in town and in that area while you were growing up and how it influenced well, you. I, I grew up loving jazz and like Coltrane and, and, and even going back as far as Benny Goodman. And, and you know, I just loved it. And uh, uh, obviously never never tried to play it, but just an enthusiast and still to this day. At five o'clock, you, we turn throughout the house, or it's on on the tour bus, or wherever it's been for the last twenty five years. A pretty steady, a uh, 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 heavy dose of jazz. So, hmm. um, just being around great musicians and that appreciating that, uh, there's there's just been, you know, I sit here and try to and try to put my finger on it, but. I think the best example of the arts of all kinds, obviously B.B. King and, and Albert King grew up down the street, and uh, I say down the street, down the highway. And, and, but to sort of summarize the magic of this place and how it can make its way into anybody that's willing uh, is Jim Henson and the Muppets. I mean, I grew up eight miles from him, and it's just, to me, that says it all. I mean, that is, like, to me, the most monumental thing globally that we could ever imagine mm-hmm. you know and and the muppets that were created in Leland Mississippi and and uh as a kid I'd go over to his, to his uh I dated a girl for years and and I'd go in Leland and I'd go over there and I got to to meet his mom and I saw those drawings of Ernie and Bert and before they were Ernie and Bert you know what I mean like before the muppets were the muppets and it, it was just the appreci- just to be able to appreciate being able to see the process and right. understand it, um, it actually gave me hope because as a songwriter, I knew that it was going to be a journey. And I knew that uh, – I knew I loved it. I knew I fell in love with it at the age of 10 or 11. And I knew that uh, it was going to take a lot of life lived and a lot of growth and, and a lot of development and a lot of people that were going to become mentors of mine from the Mississippi Delta to Nashville, back to the Mississippi Delta. Um, There was just so many people that were so strategic in in me becoming a songwriter. And that mattered to me most, uh, more than anything, is portraying the Delta. And I just, there's just so much art form here, from potters to, you know, I mean, you think think of Mr. McCarty and, and, you know, Lee and, and before he passed, and I got to know him and, uh, it's just it just never ends. It's it's the mind, it's the heart, it's the soul, it's the hands that have continuously done this amazing uh, historical work and left an impact on the world that was just born and bred down here. Right. 
You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB, and today our guest is Steve Azar. He's one of the 2018 Governor's Arts Awards recipients. Uh, the ceremony is going to take place here in Jackson at the Old Capitol Museum on Thursday, February 8th. Everyone is invited, open to the public. Please come on down, 6 p.m. Uh, ceremony. Come meet Steve and all the other recipients. So, so Steve, talk about, uh, I, I was interested in your biography, kind of those, those journeyman years, you know, uh, everyone hears about the success of the, you know, the, of the radio hits and, and the albums and all that in Nashville. But I'm curious to hear about those. There's a little bit in your biography about kind of being out on the road and kind of, you know, building your sound in that uh, during your college years and early 20s in that. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, I was uh, the the thing about growing up and just writing. First of all, you got to realize there there wasn't much to write about at that age. I mean, I was I was half into sports and half into music. Um, my my dear, my better friends were in sports, uh, which ended up playing a big role uh, in my being competitive uh, because I think you really have to be very competitive in the music business um, as as well. You know, just is equally to being a competitive athlete. So. Growing up, um, failing and losing and winning and, you know, and, and trying to achieve success there in sports really helped me prepare. So in the meanwhile, you're, you're thinking about, well, what do you write about? I mean, I, I, I got in trouble quite a bit. I was grounded a lot. I, didn't, I wouldn't do anything really wrong looking back besides sneaking out and playing music and, and, uh, and, and staying up and playing basketball at 3 in the morning. But, but just, you know, back then we didn't have cell phones, and we didn't, you know, didn't make the effort to call and let, let my parents – I didn't make the effort to call and let my parents know where I was. So there was this joke that I was grounded my entire high school career. And what I'd do is my mom – my mom knew I was going to write a, write my way out of the room, so I'd write a song and I'd go play it for her, and she'd unground me. So that, and, and as wacky as that may seem, that really set the stage for me, learning to write about something that brought me down, uh, something I wanted to fight for, but there was a silver lining, and. The, the, you know Eugene Powell was my best example. Who was Sony? You know Sonny Boy Nelson. He'd hang out behind my dad's liquor store, and he was the, my first dose of of falling in love with it. And he would just sing about his day. He walked back to his shotgun house down the street on Seventh Street, and and he'd come back and he'd make himself and the rest of us feel good about whatever was going on wrong in his life. And so looking back as a singer-songwriter, I've always been that guy. I've always – I think that that really seeped in. I think it really affected me as a songwriter that I wanted to write songs that that came from a real place of hurt and pain but yet made you feel good somehow – at the end, at the end of the song, you felt pretty dang good about it, whether it was in melody, you know, in musical lines or in lyric. So that definitely made a big impact on me. But I wasn't capable of writing any of that back back when I was a teenager because I had a half foot in, a half foot out. You know, my whole life has been dictated by that. A half foot in Nashville, half foot still in Mississippi. I've always been that bit of a mutt, no matter where where I've gone and what I've tried to do. Um, I've always had a struggle um, uh, with 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 wanting to be in Mississippi at all times, but knew that I had to sort of fit into this country world at some point. knew knew when I was twenty, I had to fit into this live world, and I had to be an entertainer. Uh, I was subject uh, to 
whatever musicians were playing with me at the time at a young age, so my sound dictated the way they played was the way we sounded and the way my songs turned out. So, uh, you know, you, you're just sort of learning uh, at the mercy of your environment. And so for me, that's how it went down. And But through all of these, uh, you know, learning curves, which there were a lot, uh, somehow along the way, after I swear, I probably looked back, I probably had 10 to 12 restarts where I thought that was it. You know, you know, I was told as a kid when I was 15 and 16 and 17, whatever, I was told it was the hardest thing in the world and you can't do it. Everybody that I went to see that I needed to tell me uh, that were in the business, they were telling me it was impossible. Mm-hmm. But it was musicians like Little Milton and Eugene Powell who found this great joy. And, and Little Milton was obviously doing better than Eugene. Little Milton was a touring musician, uh, you know, was, was truly known by the world and, uh, and was working all the time. So I was able to really draw from him, and he called me Little Lazar because he, he went and saw me from this. Uh, you know, I drew hope from him because I said, well, if Little Milton can be doing it, why can't I? That's, not, that's how naive I was, you mm-hmm. know. So, uh, you know, as I grew up, I realized how great little Milton was, you know. So, so uh, at that age, you, you, you can't pay attention to greatness. You just like it, you know. So uh, right. you just become a fan of the man and the music. And So anyway, it was a, it was a lot of growing up, but it was, it was sports and music that sort of kept me going. Right. And, and, and just thinking about little Milton and kind of a lifetime in music, too. You know, Milton had those, of course, he was successful, but he had his ups and downs, too. He had the highs and then trying well, to reinvest course. himself, you know. Well, of course. I mean, it's just no, there's no way you're getting in this business or getting out of it without those extreme highs and lows. I mean, it's really, I mean, I mean this business, that's why when people talk to me about, uh, you know, they want to do it, and or do you really want to do it? I mean, I sacrificed my throat to have my first hit in 2001, uh, I wasn't a kid. You know, I was 37. I mean, mm. I was 37. Yeah. I mean, you know, I should have walked away when I was 27. And and the bottom line is, I knew that I wanted it, and that's and that's what I that this is who I am and what and what I did. And it's like Dina Carter, my buddy, her dad, uh, Fred Carter, said it best: "It's steak or beans." And you got to tell your family that that's what it is. That sometimes we're going to have steak, and a lot of times we're going to have beans, and and there's a there's more fame that comes in fortune for most of us, and it's just what it is. And trust me, it beats the stew out of you. But I mean, I got the heck beat out of me, and and I kept coming back, you know, uh, through ignorance or just pure love, unconditional love for for what what I do. Yeah. And um, and you have to constantly reinvent yourself being an artist like me. You you, you know I. I couldn't be Brad Paisley, and I couldn't be Keith Urban, and I couldn't be where the system just really worked for people like you know Keith, who doesn't write his own songs and who who can rely on other songwriters. I can't. It didn't work, you know. And I had to play play the way I play uh, on my records because I couldn't let my songs turn into me singing on a track by other musicians because that didn't work. And so um, for me, it was always juggling all of these things until I figured out what was the best way for me to be honest with myself. And then that would in turn 
lead to things like Waiting on Joe and, and songs that I was really proud of that the industry sort of really held me up because they were like, you know, especially big songwriters, because I was able to, to articulate something in a song uh, like Waiting on Joe uh, that really put me on the map with my, with my peers. Right, and so I know I'm jumping all over the map, but you know I see all this. My my life seems to be like one big blur, but it all ties together. But I guess getting back to my throat, I was willing to sacrifice my throat, and I had a huge cyst on my throat. And so after after waiting on Joe and I have to be middle Monday, um, I went through about three years of losing my voice and trying to perform and losing range, and the cyst got so big that I literally had zero side of my left side of my throat. Hmm. So eventually I had to have it removed. And, you know, the threat of not being able to sing and all that, I don't know if I ever really was scared of that, but, but I just knew it, that it stalled me for about three years, uh, among other things. But that was really a, a thing. But my point was I wrote 80 songs the year I had a hit because I knew I had to move forward, my first hit. And I, and I also was gone 300 days for my family, and I visited every radio station times 10 and I played three shows a day, conference rooms, the middle of the night, slept for two hours, and that's what it took to have a hit. So I always talk to people when they go, oh, I really want this. Well, do you really want it? Because it's going to pound you, yeah. you know? Yeah. So anyway. Welcome back to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and uh, this is MPB's Weekly Turn at the Microphone. And today we're talking with Governor's Arts Award recipient Steve Azar on the phone here, from calling in from the Delta. Hey, Steve. Um, so we just heard a track off your most recent record down at the liquor store, and this has a, a really interesting uh, story in terms of how, how you recorded it and who's on it, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about it. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Well, when I came back, I started to spend a little more time, uh, obviously, let, you know, finally having two feet back in the Delta, and, uh, and obviously that started to really work its way into everything I was doing. Um, you know, I no longer had to, to worry about trying to, to make a record that we needed to get on, on the radio, you know, in a box. And although I love that box, and, and I'm grateful for it, I was gradually making my way and uh, getting to make a record without thought or without any thinking at all, just making a record. There was always something that made me go, oh, oh i got to do that to make that fit there. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this little thing. I sort of figured it out, you know? And so I didn't have to do that with this. And then just being around back amongst blues musicians and just the feeling of being in the Delta and Mississippi in general just sort of made me realize that I would love to, you know, I started, I headlined, you know, I was one of the headliners of the Delta Blues Festival one year, which I did as a kid and I did again in the middle of my life. And, you know, I mean, all, all the, in the middle of my career. And, you know, I, there was always that importance for me for that festival. So, you know, the, after BB's passing, they asked me to headline. And then the director, Robert Terrell, and I, and, and my manager and I were all talking, and, and they had the idea of, what if you got BB's guys to play on this record? And then I started thinking about Elvis's guy, who never said yes to me, David Briggs. Well, if we're going to do that, let's, let's, let's really have a Kingsmen band, you know? Um, and, and, and lift up some of our musical, uh, you know, celebrate some of our musical heroes of Mississippi and legends. And, and David Briggs was a guy that literally never said yes to me. He was Elvis's right-hand band leader. He was the original Muscle Shoals rhythm section keyboard player. And the stories are legendary. 
And when he when I sent him, I just played everything I wrote from the kitchen table on an iPhone. I sent it to him, and he goes, now we're talking. This is what I've been wanting you to do. He goes, where are we recording? And I said, well, that's the other hitch. you got to come to Indianola, Indianola, Mississippi for about 10 days. And he says, I'm coming. It was so cool, you know. So we actually, between BB's guys, you know, Randy Jackson's brother Herman and, and uh, Reggie Richards and Walter King. I mean, Walter Beebe's nephew played on Angels of Harlem. You too. The, I mean, so many great stories. You know, mm-hmm. Little Ray Neal. You know, the the Neal family from Baton Rouge. I mean, the band Dr. Alfonso Sanders, who's doing so much for Beebe's, uh, you know, education, uh, you know, foundation after the fact now. And mm-hmm. and just and we all got together. And I got to be honest with you, we all got together with turning a, a club that had never been turned into a, a recording studio. We documented the whole thing. There's a documentary that I forced my son. Uh, I, I broke the child labor law with this one and forced <laughs> him uh, to do the documentary, and it's called Something in the Water. And we're just trying to figure out how we're going to release it. Uh, but it explains us coming together, having to get to know each other, having to get to love each other, and to make a record with just no rules, no boundaries, everybody being themselves. And it really turned out to be my – I mean, I just love making this record. And the only comparison I can give you is when I made the Indianola record, I made it upstairs, most of it in my house. I was playing instruments like mandolins. I should be – like I should have been arrested for playing. And I was learning how to make my own records with the Indianola record. And and it's funny that you know we ended up in Indianola making the record – that my second favorite record and we're going to tour together we're getting dates and um uh the band is uh, it's it's a heavy band as far as a lot of us on stage and that can play against you but um it's just going to be one of those things where we're going to have to resell it you know like make people go oh i love that band and there's going to be crowds and sometimes there's not and you just gotta we just gotta grow and and we're in it for the long haul so it's going to be I mean, we've, we've got some cool runs coming up next year. We've got Oregon and a Pacific Coast run. We've got Chicago runs. We've got you know, some really cool places that we're going to get to play. And, and so this was, you brought this group together. They had, some of them had played together, some had not. Right. How did that – talk just a little bit about kind of in the studio. You had, you had kind of the, you know, you had the, the, the framework of your songs, but how did you take it from that to the final – how did you guys gel, I guess, is the yeah, question. Yeah, well, I, I, it took a minute to figure out how we were going to do it, especially there was a lot of noise. There was birds, a ton of birds that were born above Club Ebony. Oh. Uh, and, and I'm telling you, it was yeah. noisy. So literally, if the birds were chirping while we were playing and we got through most of the track, then the birds had to continue chirping. And we'd throw stuff at the ceiling to make sure they kept chirping because you'd notice, you know, you can't single it out on the record. But it was part of the ambiance. So if it went away, you were going like, "Where's the birds?" You know. So, so, and it's not like we had a mic on the birds. The mic, they were coming through different mics that we were recording instruments with. So, as crazy as that sounds, that had to keep happening. And and there was a guy cutting the grass. It was there was more grass cut outside of Club Ebony. Than, I mean, I was going, "Where are they cutting?" Because it was every day. You know? So we had to have the lawnmowers going. I mean, yeah. like keep keep cutting that grass. So. So we had some some distractions, and also the engineer you couldn't see him because he'd built himself into the green room. My engineer Mills, who's made all my last four or five records, 
And it was amazing because we had a microphones and headsets, but we couldn't see each other. We usually have we usually have visual contact of the engine, you know, my engineer. Yeah. And and we couldn't see him. All we could do is it was like God's voice, you know, appearing every once in a while. So anyway, we uh, I had to figure this out, but but I went back to a tried and true way that this is how I figured out years ago. The only way for me to make records was for me to play the songs basically like a work tape. Me sing and play. And everybody has to play to me because what that did was it kept my feel and my groove. And I'm more side to side than I am straight up and down. So I think that's more of a delta thing. That that and I guess it's just the way it makes you move. That country music is a little bit stiffer and a little bit you know more precise and a little bit more uh, choreographed. I guess mm-hmm. uh, with the way you move to it and the way you move to anything in Mississippi is side to side. That means it just it's just a little more greasy. Yeah. Actually, a lot more greasy. So it just it just makes your body do things different. And so that was always what worked for me. And the minute I realized that I could play and then let everybody play to me, then they can't change the song. And then all of a sudden, they were having to not only play to my song, but they were having to play to my groups the way I sang it and played it. And they couldn't venture off. So they could play their style, but they had to live. They had to live in the they had to live in my world. And so that's how we did it for this record. And also, David Briggs, you know, playing on a thousand number one records, obviously played with BB before, and obviously played with, with Albert King, with Walter King before. So these, some of these guys knew each other. Right. Um, and it, just, it had just been a lot of years since they'd seen each other. Yeah. And, and then obviously, BB's guys, there were four of them. You know, there was the four guys who, were, who spent a lot of time with Mr. King. So it was, they were used to seeing each other, but it was a reunion because they obviously hadn't seen each other in a while. Just, you could tell by just the way they had hugged each other and, and just, it was, you know, it was a, it was a a reunion when they saw each other. And this record uh, down at the liquor store, which came out last year, it it has obviously the the title track is autobiographical, but it, it sounds like all of them are kind of tie into a piece of kind of stories from, from the Delta, from your life as well. Well, it's funny, you know, how could I, I look back and I go, how could I not be able to write down at the liquor store while I was living it? I mean, every word, every, every, uh, every possible thing about that song exactly happened in my mind and, and in my life. And it molded me. And that liquor store was where I learned how to fall in love with doing what I'm doing. So why did it take me, what is it, 40 years to write? I mean, how come it took me that long while I was living it? It's just, sometimes you just got to leave and you got to come back, and then some of those memories just really start to become jarring in, in your mind, and just really start to come to the front. And it just—it's interesting to me that I wasn't able to write this while I was in the storm of it all. But but that's the centerpiece of this record, and that's the truth. And so the record's the truth, and the song's the truth. And and it's it's funny, and when I look back at the songs that that I've written, like Waiting on Joe, and 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 down to the liquor store and all that, they they come from such a place of honesty and not not thinking at all. You're just all you're doing is just writing down what what happened. And I don't even know if you call that songwriting. I don't even know what you call it. Just telling your story. I, yeah. Right. I mean, it happened. So it's sort of sitting there. And, and and any advice I'd give to any songwriter, I always say it. It's it's so funny to watch somebody get stuck. Like when I'm at the Delta Music Institute and I'm working with the kids there. Uh, I love doing it so much, but I love watching them get stuck because I'm going like, well, 
we don't I don't know where to go and there's a rhyme and there's there's so much stress and and I'm looking at them going like well what would you say next and they what they look at me like I just said this like foreign you know like like what would you say next and that's it you're having a conversation with an audience and that that audience is expecting for you to continue on that conversation and keep them on this path and that's all it is all right, we're back on our for our third segment and final segment for the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Arts Commission. We're talking with Steve Azar, one of our Governor's Arts Awards recipients this year. Well, Steve, I wanted before you got away, I wanted to make sure and have you talk about some of the other stuff you've been doing. Of course, you're one of the founders of the Mighty Mississippi Music Festival in Greenville. Right. And so talk about how, how that idea came up and, and how that's flourished. Man, I'm going to tell you something. I've never respected, I've always worried about and respected promoters, but never until I got my hands involved in this thing. I mean, it's, it's a lot to do, and, uh, but it's important because we need to celebrate uh, as much as we can. You know, when, when I first moved back, I, I guess in a nutshell, I saw Governor Bryant at Johnny Russell's funeral, and I hadn't seen him probably since I did the inauguration ball for uh, Governor Barber uh, years ago. And so uh, we started talking and just kept talking for the next, you know, following months. And, and he just really appreciated what we were doing with the foundation and, with, and what we were starting to do with the mighty Mississippi. And, and he just kept pushing me and urging me on to not stop and continue. Because, and he was showing the importance of the creative economy and uh, just really wearing it, you know, on his sleeve. And I said, man, for our governor to be this, to think this this important, it is that important. And so i got to spend enough time on this to make sure that I don't drop the ball for him or for our state or for our Delta or for our community. And, you, you know, we were already doing the foundation. It had started first, uh, the Delta Soul Charity, Celebrity Golf and Charity event. So we sort of had our, you know, we had gotten used to doing an event, you know, that was a success. And so we said, what the heck, let's try a festival. And uh, a friend of mine, Jason Pertizzi, that I that I became friend. I mean, I say he's a friend. He's a good friend now. But I just got to know him when I moved back. He's a farmer. He's a farmer and and comes from the ag world and 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 a musician. And we got together and and we got together with the head of the CBB, Wesley Smith, and and Billy Johnson, who had the Highway 61 Blues Festival. They just really wasn't going anywhere, and sort of took that festival, put it under our umbrella, you know, celebrated that that stage in the blues, but at the same time wanted to celebrate artists of all types that were influenced by our blues. And so uh, that's the Mighty Main stage. And and at the first year, man, I was calling friends. Like, you know, we called Dina Carter and Javier Colon, who just won The Voice, and Edwin McCain, and I was calling people that were buddies just to come play. And then obviously uh, we had to I started realizing my Rolodex for friends it wasn't as big as I thought, so we needed we needed to become real. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we've been we pride ourselves on. We had Chris Stapleton three weeks before he won his CMAs and the Grammy. You know, right before the Grammys and all that. We had Marin Morris right before she did it. We had the Revivalists right before they blew up. I mean, we've been really good at targeting and my ability to sort of sneak in. Uh, and go to my friends who are running everything in Nashville right now between big agents, big managers, uh, uh, you know, artists themselves. I'm able to sort of slip in and go pull some strings, and that's helped us. And also just put on this festival that I think has been extremely important for our economy. At the same time, if you can celebrate your 
your culture. In any town in Mississippi, I really urge everybody to really think about this. In in your area, there is something that separates you as as a Mississippian, as a community. And if you can gravitate toward what that is, that, that your town was based on and its history and it's founded and, and just and, – and celebrate that, then I think that it leads to people wanting to come and, and be a part of it and – you know, we've had I think 22 countries this year. I think it was 22 countries or and 22 states, something like that. I mean, the the number's crazy. So, obviously, we're not getting a hundred people from each country, but we we'd like to get there. But you know, how do you get from two to to ten? You know, you you get those two people that loved it, and they bring more friends. So, it, it's just been important. But I got to tell you, I was driven by Governor Bryant to. Um, I was driven. You know, and and I felt like it was my obligation, and so I still do. And uh, it's a lot of work. And like I said, promoters deserve to be held up, and uh, they they you know they they need to be taken to eat at Doe's here in Greenville like once a week just for. <laughs> and and the the festival has a distinctive site too. You know, it's not just Mississippi River in name only. You're right on the river uh, Man, for the side of the festival. You know, it's funny because I did my waiting on Joe my my album cover there. And I wasn't paying attention of it to be a venue. I did my waiting on Joe video there, hanging out on the banks of the Warfield Point. I mean, the towboats are literally your backdrop mm-hmm. constantly. Uh, it's got tons of trees and levee, and it's just all these great camping spots. And it's truly one of the biggest secrets in the country right now, as far as a festival. So we're we're we we've, we've been like t- hitting base hits at a time. And of course, I'd love to swing for the fence, and 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 we would love to, but we just gotta. It's just taking a minute. So my frustration's been, like, I really want to go get, you know, I really want to spend it. I want to gamble, but we just got to be careful because I've seen plenty of festivals go under, you know, that were doing well because they did that. So yeah. I think that right now, this is you. You got to look at it five years, and we just reached the five year mark, and then you got to look at the next five years. And then in 15 years, good Lord's willing, we're all still around, and this thing's been growing, then we're there. So it's it's just going to be one of those things. And listen, it takes a lot of help. The community involvement, sponsors, I mean, these things, the state, your, your CVB, everybody's got to come together. And it's not something that we're like, oh, my God, you know, trust me, this is, this is a, a, a total labor of love And uh, at this point. And that's okay with us, but it takes a massive village to pull this off. And so uh, we're blessed to be able to do it, and we're going to kind of continue to keep trying to to make the mighty Mississippi, uh, uh, you know, a global festival that people want to come see. And that's like last weekend in September. Is that your kind of set time? Basically, harvest season. We're, yeah. we're we're encroaching in a little bit on harvest season now because what we did was it was sort of created in this whole bridging the blues project um, that we jumped in and became the anchor event with the King Biscuit. So right. the goal was you get people in the Mississippi and in the Delta and you let them you give them a reason to be here for ten to fourteen days, and so they get here and they and they enjoy all of these events going on and you got these two big events that bookend that mm-hmm. are bookends. And so that was that that was this whole thought process. And and the reason we did a fall festival was because because of the bridging of the blues. And trust me, the SEC SEC football schedule weighs on us so hard and we know that we're a football state. Yeah. And so that was something I didn't want to do. But uh 
we're 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 so far into it now. I think that we're we've overcome some of that some of those obstacles. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If you're tuning in, this is the Mississippi Arts Hour, and we're talking today with Steve Azar. He's one of the 2018 Governor's Arts Awards recipients. Uh, the ceremony is going to take place Thursday, February 8th at the Old Capitol in Jackson, and it's uh, free and open to the public, so please come on down. Um, and you had mentioned kind of in the lead up to the festival, you talked a little bit about your foundation. You had mentioned that in passing, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about that and its kind of uh, and how you're trying to reach out in the Delta through the foundation? Well, we started our foundation in Nashville, but the mission statement was always about sick, abused, disadvantaged children, and also an emphasis on the arts for the Mississippi Delta. So our, our minds and hearts were in the right place. The problem was we were in Nashville, and you know, and we were living there. Our kids were born and raised there until we moved them here. So we, you know, the reality is, you know, we didn't have the community effort. Uh, here because we were still there. So um, we, the CMAs had me do the sports. It was called Steve Azar's CMA Sports Challenge every year. And I'd bring a number of athletes in from all, you know, a lot of quarterbacks, Jim Kelly, Gino Toretta, uh, Jim McMahon, and golfers like John Daly and my buddy Gary Valentine, who's killing it right now on Kevin Can Wait and, you know, and King of Queens and all that. You know, I'd bring in all of these athletes and celebrities, and we would compete uh, in the in my sports challenge. You know, we do all these. You know, it was like it was three point line, it was free throws, it was throwing the football between the you know the tires, it was you know throwing the baseball. It was everything, right? And um, and so we would raise money and we'd donate to St. Jude or donate something down here in the Delta or something. You know, but it was just so small. So uh, when we moved back, uh, you know. We, the community and our friends I grew up with, and they just really rallied, and they really. Gwen and I started the foundation, my wife and I, years, you know, in '06, I think, '06, '07, and so we finally had the backdrop in the in, you know, being back home, and the ability to to try to put on a celebrity event. So I do like like in February I've got the Arnold Palmer celebrity coming up. I do, you know, Darius Rucker and and Mark Bryan and all the guys from the Blowfisher Buddies of Mine, and we'll go do Monday after the Masters uh, in South Carolina. There's the Bob Hope I used to do. There's the BMW in Greenville, South Carolina. There's the Caddyshack, the Murray Brothers, Bill and his brothers, in Jackson and in, in the, at the World Golf Village. We do probably like ten of these a year, and um, and so we I, we all help each other. So they all come in. Um, and it's awesome because they come into the Delta. Uh, there's athletes and actors and, and comedians and movie stars from all walks, and they, they all come in and help us raise money for the Arts for Kids. And we're, we're not quite to the million-dollar mark given, but we're closing in on it. So uh, we're, we're getting close, and, uh, and we've had the support. is just incredible. So uh, the people have everybody that started with us, so our presenting sponsors has been the Hardness Foundation, Blue Cross, Blue Shield of Mississippi, and the Skin Institute down in Greenville. Uh, they've never wavered. You know, David Abney, who's been a, who's been a, uh, uh, um, uh, he's, he's the chief, he's the CEO of UPS. He's from here. Um, I met him when I came down here, and he's never wavered. You know, McDonald's, my the Retzer family. I mean, there's been just so many the James Serrani and Ram and 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 Delta Ag. I mean, I got to mention them because it never ends. They've been so so supportive. But we the cool thing is we bring in about 68 percent of the money that comes 
into here is from out of state. And they're willing to leave their dollars here uh, for the arts for kids. And we're able to, uh, you know, help programs that are established from the Boys and Girls Club to Camp Looking Glass to Delta Music Institute with scholarships to high school kids who are are going to have an emphasis on uh, who are going to go to college. And we try to give scholarships for them every year and that, that are going to live in the arts world or are going to make the attempt. Um, there's just so many programs that we think is important, and so uh, we've been able to do that. And I just feel like, look, not every kid's built to hit the 85-mile-an-hour curveball coming, coming at you. you know. But even that kid that can hit that ball needs the arts. Everybody needs the arts, and as we know, a lot of schools are taking it out of their uh, out of their curriculum, and they don't see the importance. Uh, and I personally think that you're really leaving out one of the most important things uh, if you leave the arts out of uh, out of uh, the you know uh, of the uh, just the growth and 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 uh, what do you call it the uh, Help me out here, Larry. The the development of a child. The development, yes, absolutely. The development of a child because it's just so key. So anyway, um, as you can tell, I'm starting to lose my brain. My brain power is starting to (laughs) fade. So I'm glad this interview is making its way toward the end or you would really be in trouble. Well, before you totally forget everything about yourself, Steve Azar, let people know, uh, of course, everyone can come visit with you uh, prior to the ceremony on February 8th at the Old Capitol for the Governor's Arts Awards coming up. But if people have an interest in learning more about your, your latest CD, the foundation, the festival, where, where should you send them? Where should they go? sick of me at steveazar.com and then you can also go watch some of the trailers for the film at steveazarandthekingsmen.com so and then check out that and then like look look I'm into the whole the reality is people have are streaming music right now it's just what it is I'm not necessarily in favor of it and I don't agree with how somehow along the line music became sort of a free thing but it's what it is and you got to move on so I guess what I'm saying is anybody gets gets the spirit and wants to go download the new record it's Steve Azar and the Kingsmen down at the liquor store, and you, if you wherever you're streaming, is there. So uh, check it out, and 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 it's uh, it's a Mississippi thing, you know. Well, Steve, thanks so much for your time today. We're looking forward to seeing you at the at the Arts Awards Governor's Arts Awards ceremony on February eighth. 